2: Hey guys, and welcome to Paranormal Thoughts Podcast. And as always, thanks for joining me. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Scott Kobaba. Dr. Scott Kobaba is an American physician who has recently written a one-of-a-kind book called Physicians' Untold Stories. The stories you'd find in this book evolve around doctors talking about unexplained events that happen to them quite regularly that they don't usually talk about with other people or really anyone. Some of the things you find in this book are near-death experiences, miraculous healing, things of this nature. I really found this chat interesting. What I liked as well, there was definitely some very important points of coincidence, and I would go as far to say synchronicity throughout this, where definitely synchronicity has something to do with everyday life. It's really up to you if you want to listen to that feeling you get where you're getting these messages and whether or not you want to act on them or you kind of just want to put them to the side. And that's what I think what this book is also teaching us is to be more aware of things that go on around us and to listen to them as well. It was great to talk about the idea of a high power as well. I used to think I might have been a religious person, but now I definitely like the idea of a high power. I'm not sure personally for me that it is a typical god that you would find in any sort of religion. I think it's a little bit more different, but it's interesting how much a high power comes up in these following stories. If you're interested in finding the book, check out the description below. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, feel free to subscribe, like, follow rate the podcast depending on the platform you listen to we'll give you those options go check out our blog paranormalthoughtspodcast.wordpress.com I'd like to thank Dr. Scott Kobaba for coming on again great having him on I really enjoyed this chat I really hope you do please enjoy hi Scott hi Dylan how are you I'm good I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and having a bit of a chat with me let's start with a little bit of an introduction about yourself
3: Dylan, thanks for having me on. Let me give you a little background on uh, who I am. I've been a doctor in Wheaton, Illinois for about 35 years, more years than I'd like to admit. Uh, I love what I do. Uh, I've always wanted to be a doc. I got waylaid in college and got off the the track to go into economics, but uh, eventually went back to, to medicine. I take care of primary care patients, and I've done that uh, my whole life. You never know what's coming through the door. It could be a sore throat, diarrhea, or heart attack. Uh, Mostly we deal with simple things like uh, boils and sore throats and things like that, but occasionally we'll get something really serious, and I think we uh, can occasionally do some good. I've um, got a big family. I I was an only child. When I grew up, we grew up in a two-bedroom house. I thought it was a a castle, but now that I look back, it was a tiny little house. And um, no brothers and sisters. Uh, I was the only grandchild also. And now I've got seven kids of my own. I think that's probably why I wanted to have a large family. I'm not sure where they all came from, but uh, they're all special and all a little bit different. We've got uh, some that wandered by. We've adopted a few. I'm not sure which ones anymore.
2: Great. Sounds like you have a very fulfilling life. You have a lot going on.
3: There's always a lot going on, that's for sure. And then writing a book in my abundant leisure time, again, between midnight and 2 a.m. was uh, one additional task that I decided to take on. Let's talk a little
2: bit about the book before we kind of go into great detail and into it. But So what is this book that you've written?
3: It's a book about doctor stories, and the stories that I included were tales that doctors couldn't explain medically. And so... Initially, I had a few interesting experiences myself, which became, sensitized me actually to, to these kinds of stories. And then a couple of docs came up to me and, and started to tell me stories about some really unusual stuff that happened to them that they wouldn't tell anyone else. And after I heard a couple of those stories, I began to think, maybe I should write these down. Maybe there's some value to writing these amazing stories down. Because you know, doctors don't talk about this. Doctors talk about certain potassium levels and gallbladder surgeries and who had the last... Uh, a heart attack, and what what their coronary anatomy was, and so forth. But they don't talk about these these spiritual kinds of stories that that happen to almost all of us. And so, after hearing a couple of stories like that, I, I uh, every doctor has pretty much a whole gamut of people in all professions. And so, I had a publisher that I take care of, and I thought, well, maybe I I should meet with him and see what his thoughts are about whether I should publish this book, whether these stories had some value or not. So we had lunch, and I was eating. I was pretty hungry, and he was eating. And then he then he stopped stopped eating. And I wasn't looking at him for a while. I, I was busy eating myself, and I realized he stopped eating. And I, I stopped one of the stories I was telling, and I looked up, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said to me, you have to write these down. These are incredible stories. You have to—people need to read and, and learn about these stories from doctors that are scientists at heart but have had unusual experiences that you can't explain with science. And so I did. I started writing the stories down, and then uh, I started meeting with doctors in the doctor's lounge. I would ambush them first thing in the morning <laughs> and say, do you have any interesting stories that you can't explain scientifically? And many of them did. And the ones I, I ended up probably interviewing about 200 docs, and the ones that I included in the, in the book were ones that gave me goosebumps or made me tear up in, in, with emotion. And some of them still do. Uh, it's it's uh, interesting. And that's how the book got started.
2: Great. I think I love that concept, because it is something that I've often wondered too, is when these experiences kind of happen and they can't be easily explained, like how often that kind of happens and whether or not anyone actually reaches out to other doctors or anyone to kind of discuss or figure out what is going on?
3: Most don't. Most doctors don't reach out to anyone about these. Uh, I think one of the first stories I heard was from Dr. Dave Mokler, orthopedic surgeon, uh, when, uh, who's one of his patients, a mutual patient, had an out-of-body experience. And I said to Dave, after he told me the story, Dave, who did you tell this story to? And he said, my wife. And I said, who else? And, and he said, no one. You're the only one I can tell the story to because she, she was your patient. And I know you wouldn't make fun of me, but I think if I told this story to anyone else, they, they, they'd think I was crazy. And that's the general consensus of of what doctors feel, I think, in general, and and patients do uh, also. And so I was hoping when I wrote this book that I would be able to start a new dialogue between doctors and patients and doctors and doctors and everyone about some of these interesting experiences that that, uh, people don't talk about. And I think for that reason, that they are afraid of being criticized or or made fun of. And just the opposite has happened to the docs that have come forward with these stories. And and that is they're heralded as heroes because they are breaking ground and opening up a dialogue now that patients feel they can share some of their stories. Because when you really think about it, Virtually every family or every individual has had a an interesting experience that they really can't explain. I don't know if you have experienced that, but from my experience, when I when I tell some of these stories to patients, and I love to sit in the exam room and tell the and tell these stories, I'm usually late also because I'm telling too many stories. But what happens commonly is that a patient will then say to me, "Well, I've got a story like that too that I've never told anyone. Let me tell it to you." And those are those are really interesting experiences. And I think if we get people talking about this more and more, it's going to help. I think make people feel better and and give them some peace and hope and realize that there is something else out there that looks after us.
2: Definitely. I'm glad that the response has been good and no one has been sort of getting backlash from it because that was one thing when you got in contact with me, I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. All these doctors coming together to tell their stories and how does the public deal with that? But it is one of those things that as soon as you do start to do it, it becomes more normal, you could say, and people are then open to actually discussing it. And such a taboo kind of topic, but as you said, everyone has these kind of experiences that you just can't you can't make sense of. It's even just last night I was talking right. to someone, and they were telling me about this paranormal event that happened, but they never mentioned it to me. But it was just kind of in passing. I was like, well, you know, it's I would have never guessed that this person even was open to that. And then all of a sudden, they've just shared this event with me. I've just gone, oh wow, like it really. Does happen to a lot of us, and whether or not we're open to talk about it or even to look any more into it, it's it's definitely an interesting thing.
3: And you know, the doctors that I I talked with are ordinary doctors. These are not there. There are some doctors and some in any any profession that are a little on the edge. You know, they're a little uh, not quite in the mainstream. And I made sure that the doctors I talked to were pretty ordinary doctors that had no reason to tell a, a bizarre story. When they came out with these stories, I was I was just shocked. And when I would say to someone, do you have a story for me? And they'd say, yes, I've got a story for you. And it's interesting, too, that when I was interviewing the doctors in the doctor's lounge, when they'd come through, I'd say, you know, do you have a story for me that, that you can't explain scientifically? And if they had a story, they knew it right away and they would tell it to me. And if they didn't have a story, I don't think I've ever I've ever heard from the doc. So. It, it was interesting, but there were a, a number of doctors. Many, many doctors had interesting, very interesting stories, and many patients when I tell patients these stories too. So it's been fun to to start that dialogue, and I hope that can, can continue, and I hope people uh, do start talking to each other about paranormal experiences that they've had. Definitely.
2: So what was your first event that happened that you can't explain with science, do you think?
3: It was an interesting uh, experience. My family, when I was growing up, I was, like I said, I was the only child. And one of the things I loved to do with my family was take family vacations. And we go to Yellowstone uh, National Park in Colorado and, and Wyoming and, and places like that. I'll never forget some of those incredible vacations. So as I grew up and my parents passed away, I began to uh, start having vacations with my family. And I've got seven kids and now I've got uh, grandkids. And in-laws and so forth. And and we've been taking vacations with about 23, 24 on a regular basis. And one of our favorite places is a place called Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And and there are some times when you're with your family that is just so special you you almost want to pinch yourself because it's just so unreal that the vibration, the the um, the Gestalt there is is just so special, mm. and this was one of those special days that we had. And it was uh, toward the evening. The, the boys on the vacation, the boys usually cook and give the girls a, a break. And we are pretty good actually at cooking. And we were cooking this night uh, swordfish on the on the grill, and corn on the cob, and baked potatoes, and some really fun things that we don't always have at home. And I'm I'm sitting there thinking, this is really an incredibly special time. The boys were all t- talking to each other. The girls were joking around. The little kids were running around chasing bugs and whatever. And the yard. And we had just completed a wonderful day at the beach. And and I kept thinking it's it's too bad my mother, my mother would have loved to be, uh, to share this family event. And when the boys were buying the food, we uh, came across the whole stack of pies. So we bought five cherry pies. It was a big stack of cherry pies on sale. And we started talking about our favorite pies at the time. And and our favorite pie turned out to be a rhubarb pie. My mother used to make the most incredible rhubarb pie. We had a big plant in the backyard. And at the end of the season, she'd pick all the stalks and she'd make this real, really sweet rhubarb pie. And when we'd go visit her, we'd all sneak into the kitchen, although I'm sure, she knew exactly where we were. We'd grab spoons. Sanitation aside, we just dig in and, and eat, <laughs> devour two or three rhubarb pies. And it was an incredibly wonderful experience. And, and I kept thinking on this Cape Cod vacation, I, if my mother was here, she'd make us a rhubarb pie. And, and wouldn't that be special to have her share this incredible family vacation with us? And so we had the dinner. It was really good. We did a great job with the swordfish steaks. And my wife served the cherry pie afterwards. And I took a bite of the cherry pie and was sitting there with all the boys in the girls and the kids. And I got goosebumps. Looked at the box and it said cherry pie. And I looked at the pie. and It wasn't cherry. It was rhubarb. Wow. Now you can say maybe at the factory, they were cooking rhubarb and cherry pies and someone slipped the rhubarb pie into the cherry box and all that kind of stuff, whatever. All the rest of the pies were cherry, but this one was rhubarb pie. And that gave me goosebumps and made me think, I think my mom is really has is telling me that she was there sharing that wonderful family experience with all the family and that that was her way of telling me that that she was there so that was the first occurrence that made me really think about some spiritual things that are happening to us on a semi-regular basis that got me sensitized to others other experiences and then uh, a little while later some of the doctors started coming to me with their stories and i don't know why they did because again, they're, they're very hesitant. And after I heard a few of the stories, then I, again, I went to the, my publisher and, and he said, you have to write these down. So that's, that's when the book started. So that was my first experience. And then, like I said, because other doctors kept coming to me, then I started seeking the stories myself. And that's what re- resulted in the book. And I'm still hearing stories that are, that are amazing stories.
2: I love that story with the, the pie because it is, as you said, it could have been a mix up at the factory or what have you. But regardless of that, it meant something to you and it was a personal message to you. And it was almost that awakening of you becoming more aware of these odd events that can't be easily explained that do happen, Right. you know. Right. So I think, I know I've sort of had those moments where these events kind of line up and you could kind of make sense of them, but they are too much to be a coincidence you find and you find the message within that.
3: And that was one of the things that came out in the book. You know, I, I just uh, collected stories. I didn't have any any agenda on the stories. I just wanted stories that, that you couldn't explain scientifically. So I I wasn't sure, you, you never know when you do that, what the book is going to turn out, what the, what the bottom line for the book is going to be. And I think one of the bottom lines is look for those coincidences in your life. Look for the little things. And sometimes you won't discover them, except in retrospect, that that something happened to you, that you met a person on the elevator, that you happened to go to this particular location for, for a reason that you didn't realize until years later. And you then discovered that yeah that was that was something that happened to me that, that led me to do this and this and this and and um, there was some something helping me out to to accomplish some some goals that I wanted to uh, that I needed to accomplish. I've had some experiences like that myself getting into medical school.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In your book, Physicians: The Untold Stories, you speak of a couple of different topics. Some here I've got uh, near-death experiences, unexplained miracle healings, apparitions, and dreams for telling the future. I'm really interested in that last one, the dreams for telling future events. So what can you tell me about that?
3: There were several docs that had interesting dreams. There were two that I can think of. The one was uh, a fellow by the name of Manrique, and uh, Luis Manrique is a fellow from South America that uh, struggled to become a doctor because uh, in, in that country you had to be at the top of your class and I, I think there was a test they took and out of 25,000 uh, test uh, takers they would, would select 40 for the uh, for the medical school and so he was one of those when I was 40. And uh, he was in medical school in, in Peru where he was uh, living. Uh, grew up. And medical school there is uh, uh, six years. So it's uh, you, you combine college and medical school at the same time. So he was in about his third year, and uh, they were studying really, really hard. And he remembers being exhausted one night, and, and he went to bed. And he wasn't sure if he was asleep or if he was dreaming, but he was afraid to open his eyes. And All of a sudden, he could tell with his eyes closed that there was a light in in the room. and, And the room became brighter and brighter. And he was, again, afraid to open his eyes. He didn't know why. He was afraid that that might be real uh, and, and not, a real, not a dream and so all of a sudden the head of the bed was against the wall and he heard something behind him and he couldn't understand where that was coming from it was uh, it was a voice from, from behind his his bed where the wall was and the voice said something like um, uh, you'll be okay you won't be hurt and, and he, he became very quiet and still because he wanted to hear the rest of the words but there were no other words and shortly thereafter, the uh, room lights seemed to go fade away and it became dark again and he drifted off into a deep sleep if he wasn't in the sleep before. He wasn't sure if it was a dream or if it was something real. The next morning he woke up thinking, this is a very interesting dream because you know, most of the time when you wake up, you forget the dreams that you've had. You just, they're, they're out of your mind. But this one stuck with him for a little bit and he couldn't understand what that meant, that uh, he wouldn't be hurt. And so he went about his day, went to school, and, and that was a Friday, and, and they had a particularly busy week. They had the weekend off. So after the class classes were over that day, he and some of his friends decided to go to a local um, bar, and uh, have a few beers and, and enjoy themselves and unfortunately medical students are so <laughs> generally so tired and overworked they have one or two beers and they're they're done for the night mm-hmm. so they had to leave early they were all exhausted so they left relatively early and they had a designated driver manuel who had a couple beers also so i'm not sure why he became the designated driver but he was and so they uh, drove off and the cool air at night uh, awakened them a little bit more so they became a little uh, happy and and uh, started to yell out the window and and Manuel, when he was driving, started to swerve a little bit back and forth. And uh, Luis, um, my friend, decided to buckle up because he wasn't buckled at the time. And as he was reaching for the buckle, Manuel uh, turned to him. And in a very serious manner, something that would never have happened uh, generally, uh, it wasn't his personality, said, said to Luis, you don't need to buckle. And it was with such authority that uh, Luis just let go of the buckle. And those were the last words that Manuel would ever say. The car swerved. They went across the bridge. They were going too fast. It rolled over multiple times. Manuel was thrown out, and a couple days later, he was uh, he was uh, in a coma for a couple days and he was killed. He died in, in the hospital several days later. Uh, the car rolled over multiple times. Luis was in the front seat, and uh, when the car started to roll over, he was forced, for some reason, into the driver's side. And the car ended up landing on its hood, on its uh, uh, top, upside down. The medical students in the back were, were hurt. Luis... Uh, looked over to where the passenger seat was where he would have been buckled he realized why he didn't buckle the the whole top of the car was crushed down into the seat had he been in there buckled up he'd have been crushed and killed as it was he had glass all over him but he doesn't recall any injuries at all he ran to the local fire station a little ways away got the ambulance they got all the individuals out of the car and uh, he, uh, when, when when this was happening, he sat on the curb, shaking with adrenaline, uh, because he was just so so upset about the whole thing. And then he realized that even though he was covered with glass from the windshield, he wasn't hurt at all. There were no there were no cuts, no broken bones, nothing. He was totally unhurt. And suddenly, in the back of his head, came rushing back this this dream: "You will not be hurt." And he realized. That someone, uh, he called it. He, he said, "This is God that that protected me. That that someone had protected was protecting him and warning him that he would be okay the night before. And when he got back home, his mother was obviously really upset, and they cried together. And he went to bed and he said a prayer, thank you for saving my life.' And so uh, I think that was uh, one of the interesting dreams that uh, I've heard before. and, and poor Manuel was. Was killed when when after he told him not to buckle up.
2: That's insane, isn't it really? It's just fascinating, isn't it? It
3: is. It is. It was fascinating to him to have something happen like that, and and he says that's never happened before. But it was really what you know the coincidences that happened that that the driver was thrown out of the car, that he was pushed over to the driver's side. The roof of the car was 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 smashed down into the into the passenger seat, and uh, he could have been there totally. Uh, crushed to death. And uh, he was totally unhurt. So it it was a a life-changing event for him. And uh, after that, he finished medical school, went on to uh, do a residency in Chicago and has become a prominent uh, infectious disease doctor here in, in our area. Great.
1: Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
4: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can.
2: It would definitely change the whole course of your life from after that. Near death experiences. What have you heard from people that they witness during that time? Because I often heard from other people, people seem to hear and see some really interesting things in those split seconds or however long that that experience goes on for. So what have you heard?
3: Lots of different things. And I think some of the near-death experiences that people experience are probably just a result of lack of blood supply to the brain and you see white lights and things like that. So I think some of those are are, are just a result of uh, chemical changes. But I think there are some really interesting and bizarre near-death experiences that people have that you can't explain uh, by that. And uh, there's one that, uh, again, Dr. Mokel, uh, one of my friends, an orthopedic surgeon, told me that that uh, kind of started me on this this journey of, to write, writing a book. And it was a mutual patient that he had. who was operating on, and, and she arrested on the table in the operating room. And when that happens, it was the um, – actually, it was the antibiotic that they had given her that caused her to arrest. She had an anaphylactic reaction to it. And when she arrested, she, her heart stopped. Uh, her eyes were closed. She had no response to pain. She was basically dead. And they, they called the code. They started doing CPR. It was a fellow that came in from the room next door because when they have a code in the OR, everyone kind of rushes in to see if they can help. And and this tech was doing CPR and wasn't doing it adequately enough because Dr. Mokul couldn't feel a pulse. So he asked the fellow to step aside. And when he didn't, after a couple of requests, uh, codes are not polite affairs. It's a life and death thing. And Dr. Mokul is in charge of making sure that uh, his patient stays, stays alive as much as possible, mm-hmm. as much as he can. So he actually pushed the, the tech aside. And the tech had some pretty red hair underneath his operating room cap. is was pretty uh, striking. And he start, Dr. Mogul started to do CPR himself. And, and eventually that was adequate CPR. They administered some, some epinephrine a few other drugs. And her heart started again and, and she came back, but was not in, conscious until the next day. The cardiologist took over. They realized uh, in the ICU that it was the antibiotic. And then after a couple of days, she was fine again. Uh, still had the ankle problem, but uh, Dr. Mokal went in to talk with her about the discharge and and told her that you know uh, t- how to take care of the ankle and and those kinds of things. And she's interrupted him and she said, "Thank you for saving my life." Pretty humble guy. He said that was just a team effort. Everyone pitched in. We, and then she said, "No, no," she inter- interrupted him again. I saw you push that guy aside and I saw you take over the CPR. And then I saw you page Dr. Kolbaba and I saw you look at the door multiple times and I saw the nurse come in with the orange outfit on and and do this and, and she mentioned, multiple minutia. By this point, Dr. Mokel was totally blown away. He didn't know what to do. Uh, he was trying to figure out how scientifically he could explain all this, and he had to sit down with his weak knees uh, because uh, it was just so unusual that, that she would have this experience. And he said, well, how did you know this? And she said, when, when I arrested, my something, rose, I rose up to the top of the room, and I could see everything that was happening. I could see my body. I could see everyone doing CPR, and I saw you push that guy with the red hair underneath his cap aside. And while I was there, uh, my grandmother came to me who had been dead for many years, and she told me it wasn't my time to go, that I would have to come back. But that if I was a kind person and gentle and nice, the grandmother would save a special place for her in heaven that she would go to uh, when she left the earth. And then she had to go back to her body because uh, they got her heart going again. And by this point, Dr. Mokel was just totally, he uh, uh, couldn't believe it. And I said to Dave, uh, Dave, who did you tell this to? Have you told it to you know anyone else? And he said, my wife. And again, that, that's it. He was afraid to tell anyone this interesting story. And what's interesting about that is I've known, I knew Mary who had the arrest for a long time. She was my patient also. Mm and she was kind of a curmudgeon you know you have some patients that you love to see and some patients that you kind of dread seeing because they're not nice and so we we could never do anything right for mary we were always we were always late or we didn't call in the right prescription or there's a whole host of things that she was co- complaining about after her arrest and after this meeting with her grandmother, she was the kindest person you could imagine. She helped everyone she could. She helped her widowed father. And it was like, uh, I, I called the story Mary's Christmas Carol, because it reminded me of Scrooge yeah. and how that, that event and how he was transformed from a curmudgeon <laughs> like Mary to an incredibly kind and gentle and helpful person. And so, uh, but... but uh, Dave was afraid to tell that story to anyone else because it's just so unusual and he couldn't explain it scientifically. He couldn't there was no scientific explanation for a story like that. She was clearly dead and witnessed all these things that happened to her in great detail.
2: Fascinating. Miraculous healing, I'm sure, is one of the topics in the book that is probably pretty common for a lot of doctors where people are obviously quite ill and then they do suddenly just get well. I'm sure you've encountered a bit of that and so have some of your colleagues.
3: That's happened to all of us, and and sometimes it it can be embarrassing because you know you're you're the person that you're taking care of is on death's door, and you tell the family you know this person is not going to live more than a few more days, and we're going to you know I think it's time to unplug all of the IVs and everything else, and. And you do that, and I've had this happen to me several times. And um, then all of a sudden, the next <laughs> the next day, they're sitting up in bed. Hey, doc, what's your breakfast? And yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, and they within a couple of days, they walk out of the hospital, and you just can't explain some of those things. So we have all had those kinds of experiences, and and you know some of those may be religious, and some of those are are just fate and just luck mm. and things like that. So, but there are a couple experiences that the docs have related to me that really weren't like that, and, and, and again, many of the miracle cures, I think, are sometimes not uh, very exciting, but uh, this, I included a couple in the book because they were so unusual that I thought they were worth putting in, and, and uh, the one that I particularly like is um, about Barbara Kaminsky, and before I tell her story, it's interesting that she has a phenomenal story. Dr. Marshall is my friend who, who took care of her and told me the story, but you know, when, I, when you write a book, you have to get permissions from everyone, And you have lawyers that go over the manuscript and make sure that you got this person to sign off and the dotted line and so forth. So I was having trouble uh, and I loved Barbara's story, but I couldn't find her. This happened a number of years ago and she moved away. And I had a number of search engines going and and I wrote a number of letters to different locations and made some phone calls, but nothing. The the trail was, was gone. I couldn't find her. And so I was really sad because I had to turn in the manuscript that week and to get to get, to get to get it published, I had a certain deadline, and I would have to pull her story because I could have her permission. So I, I was bemoaning the fact that I would have to pull her story uh, because I had to turn the manuscript on the next day, and all of a sudden, there was a phone call, and I picked up the phone. It was Barbara Kaminsky, and she said to me, Dr. Kolbaba, I know I got a letter from you about six months ago, and I put it aside, and for some reason today, I thought I'd Maybe give you a call and and see if you still needed me. <laughs> I said, "Oh my goodness, this is incredible! I've got to turn the manuscript in tomorrow." Here <laughs> you're calling me the night before, and uh, what a coincidence! And I said, "You know, would you give me permission?" And she said, "Absolutely! I'd love to get my story out to help people realize that there's something else out there that miracles do happen." And so I was able to to publish her story, and the story goes something like this: uh, Barbara, who grew up in the same town that I live in, and actually went to school with my wife. It's very interesting, and she remembers. Seeing her, and Barbara suffered from multiple sclerosis. And my wife Joan remembers when she first started to have problems. It was in the in the gym class, and she was a uh, gymnast and and a, quite a good gymnast. And she lost the grip on the uh, the rings, and she she couldn't hold on to the rings tight enough. And that's when Joan, my wife, realized that there was some problem with her, and and that progressed, and she had a number of doctor evaluations, ultimately went to the Mayo Clinic and they diagnosed multiple sclerosis. And she progressively got sicker and sicker and she lost a lot of her vision. She was having uh, problems walking. She couldn't walk eventually. She required a tracheostomy tube, which is a tube in the throat, so that she could breathe and she had oxygen going to that tube. She had one collapsed lung. She had recurrent infections because she couldn't ventilate her lungs very well. And the, the, Dr. Marshall, my friend, who, who took care of her for quite a long time, uh, realized that she was basically dying and, and said, you know. Uh, to the family. Let's enroll you in hospice, which is a service where they have to certify, the doctors have to certify that the person has less than six months to live. Barbara's pastor came to see her and realized that she was not going to live very much longer. They expected her to live a couple of weeks and that's it. And so uh, the hospice nurses were taking good care of her. And there's a, there was a radio show at about the same time that solicited prayers for individuals that were in dire straits, and Barbara's name came up to the radio station, they gave, they told her story, and and there were lots of people, evidently, they were praying for her. And this one particular Sunday, Barbara's aunt came by with a big sack of mail of everyone that had said prayers for her and had written in to Barbara to, to wish her good luck. And she brought the sack of mail in and she sat down there were a couple other people from her church that were there, and the occupational therapist, and and Barbara was in bed. She couldn't get out of bed. She was having a lot of trouble uh, with any everything, and all of a sudden she she heard a voice, and the voice said something like, "My girl, uh, get up and walk." And she said she knew immediately this was the voice of God. That's what she said to me. And so she imme- she immediately stood up. She could she could take she took her braces off. She took the oxygen out of her tracheostomy tube. The um, the occupational therapist that was there went nuts because she said you can't do that. You can't take the oxygen off. You'll you'll suffocate. And uh, she said no, I can. And she took her braces off. She went and walked into the other room. Uh, where her parents were, they started to cry when they saw her walking, they couldn't believe it. She was so excited that she sat on the couch and bounced up and down about 10 times because she hadn't done that for years and couldn't believe that she could actually do that. And then she did a little ballet movement for her, for her folks. They said a prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, from that moment on, she had no residual problems from her multiple sclerosis. The next night, she decided to go to church She was late for church because she had nothing to wear. Her mother had given all of her clothes away because she she knew she would never wear her clothes again because she'd never go out of the house, that she was dying. So she had to borrow a dress from the neighbor, and so she borrowed the dress, was late for church, and church was going on, the pastor was uh, in the uh, pulpit uh, facing the audience, and Barb was in the foyer, and as soon as the pastor saw her in the foyer, he fell against the pulpit and stopped talking. He couldn't speak. He thought she was an apparition because he expected her to be dead any any minute. Well, she started to walk down the aisle. She st- started to stroll. Can you imagine this? Strolling down the aisle, there were whispers all over the church. That's Barbara Kaminsky. That wasn't she dead? It didn't wasn't she going to? Didn't she have multiple sclerosis? And all of a sudden, as if left, left led by a divine hand, the entire congregation started to sing amazing grace can you imagine dylan the the emotion that that must have had uh, with everyone singing amazing grace uh, an individual who was expected to die now cured walking down the aisle to the pastor and finally the pastor was able to regain his speech and, and asked her to tell her story and she did the next day she went to see dr marshall my friend who removed the rest of the tubes and everything else and she was totally cured. They did some scans and x-rays. The lung was now expanded. It wasn't collapsed anymore. And her vision was back. Uh, Her muscles were back. It was just the most amazing thing that they had ever seen. And um, after this, she decided to dedicate her life to helping others, and she indeed did. Over the last number of years, she married a pastor, and she is now dedicating her life on the East Coast, I think it's Virginia that she lives, to helping anyone that she comes in contact with. She runs some, some church groups, She's been a joy and a great help to uh, to thousands of people, evidently.
2: Wow. Definitely a great story, that one.
3: That was an um, amazing story. Mm-hmm. and I, I know the doctors that were involved. They're pretty ordinary doctors. And, and my, again, my wife knew Barbara Kaminsky and knew, knew her problems quite well. She was in the same class. Have you
2: heard from many people about people having these near-death experiences and then either coming out the other end maybe more religious or more spiritual? Maybe they weren't so much down that sort of path before the event happening
3: that yes we, i've heard those and i've heard the doctors also that have, that have heard these experiences come out having a new sense of that there's something else out there mm. and and you know that 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 uh, there is a god there is a force there's something higher than us that looks looks after us one of the uh, doctors that particularly happened to is uh, noemi sigalov who is a as a surgeon noemi's uh, from romania She has an interesting background. She uh, uh, had to escape communist Romania with uh, secret service uh, men (laughs) chasing her. Her family got out uh, before she did, and she had to stay there. And she tells me that uh, one night her grandmother came to her with a moving truck, a big truck, and she loaded up all her furniture and everything else that they could load up and uh, moved her to a different town so the Secret Service wouldn't uh, harass her. She also remembers her father when he lived there. Uh, her father was um, not part of the Communist Party. And every every once in a while uh, in the neighborhood, she would hear about a, of someone that would accidentally fall off a roof or disappear. And she was always afraid when the father would come home late from work that he had, quote, fallen off a roof right. accidentally or something like that. So she went through quite a, quite a bit of trauma. But her, her story is, is that of taking care of a couple of missionaries from Africa. These were doctor missionaries. And uh, Ron uh, was the, the missionary that she was particularly fond of. And uh, he, she was taking care of his wife. And every time they would see Noemi, they would tell her, that you, you you, need to believe and read the Bible and to become a little more spiritual. And They, they did it in such a, a kind way that it, it wasn't like they were twisting her arm or anything. She said she didn't mind their talking about that. And Ron, one uh, when, when of the last visits with, with her, because her wife was healed uh, after the surgical procedure that Noemi did, said, someday I'm going to show you that there is something else out there, that there is something, there is life after death, that you go to a special place and, and I will I will show you that. I promise I will, I'll do that. And she said, that's fine. A few years later, Noemi was, decided to go on a vacation. She was pretty burned out from a lot of work that particular month or so and was taking a four-day weekend to Tucson, Arizona. And uh, the morning she flew out, she uh, was making rounds really early in the morning because she had to to go on the plane uh, pretty early that morning also, and as she entered the hospital, there was no one there. But all of a sudden, she in her mind's eye she saw uh, Ron, the uh, the missionary doctor, in her vision. She she remembers that he had a smile on his face as if he had accomplished his major life's objective, and uh, she was so taken back by this that she said hello, uh, nice to see you, or something like that. And then she looked around uh, and wanted to make sure that no one else had heard her say that. And then the the vision disappeared in her mind's eye and and then she went on to make her rounds and then onto her vacation. She shut off her phone and all the internet stuff because when you go on vacation, it's nice to get totally away and not hear about anything. But when she was on her way back, she uh, got to the airport and decided to open up her all emails. And one of the emails was from the vice president of the hospital and it said, I regret to tell everyone that we lost a very special uh, uh, supporter of our hospital. Ron Jones, or whatever his last name was, died, uh, and he died the morning that she left for vacation. So that smile on his on his face was the crowning. She says the crowning missionary experience that he had in his life to show her that there was life after death.
2: Yeah, right. Fascinating,
3: isn't that? Isn't that? And then she uh, said, after that, I decided to read the Bible, and uh, and then become a little more aware of, of uh, the hereafter, mm. and so changed her quite a bit.
2: So what's your view on maybe a higher power or an afterlife? And what, what was your view maybe before this book, and then now what's your
3: view? I've, I've always believed that there is there is a God uh, that loves us unconditionally, that, that looks out for us. But after hearing these stories, it really has solidified my belief that, that there definitely is a higher power, that there is a God. And I believe that this, this higher power does look out for us. And I can see now in my own life, uh, little coincidences and things that tell me that there's something that does participate in our lives in interesting ways and, and quite commonly in many cases in little things and in big things. Uh, the, the stories that I put in the book are the are the big things, but there are lots of little things that I think uh, happen to us that you can't explain. And I think hearing these stories from ordinary doctors that don't have a reason to tell bizarre and strange stories uh, that had to be arm twisted to actually have me include them in, in in the book made me realize that even more that there is something out there. And I'm hopeful that people will look for those coincidences and the strange experiences in their lives and realize that sometimes in retrospect, you don't realize what's happening to you sometimes when it's happening. But in retrospect, you can look back and and see that that something was was working in your life to help you and guide you in the and the things that the worthwhile causes that you were trying to accomplish. Definitely.
2: Well, that's good to hear that mm-hmm. what you have gotten out of the book of course cuz you have your purpose for sharing the stories with the world and it's interesting then what you get out of that as well and it sounds like you've gotten something really positive out of it.
3: I have. And it's interesting too that people have asked me were any of these experiences negative? Were these? Did anyone have any bad experiences? And I can say they really haven't. Uh, these were all very positive experiences that the doctors had. And in talking with the palliative care doctors, I've got a couple of stories from the palliative care doctors, and they also said that when when people are near death, uh, invariably they will have almost always positive experiences too and not bizarre negative experiences, which is, I thought was very interesting to hear from a person that is around people that are dying all the time, mm. which is kind of uh, reassuring and, and hopeful. And that's that's what I hoped also from from this book, to, to have people realize that there is something after we die, that their loved ones may participate in our lives in interesting ways and and that there is hope and this is a funny world out there we we have a lot of bad things happening with terrorism and and uh, all the things that that the nuclear build up and so forth that that uh, there is hope and and I think there's something that looks out for us.
2: I guess the last thing I have to ask is where can people find the book?
3: Uh, It's available through Amazon and it's available around the world, Australia, England and America through Amazon.com. Our website is also physiciansuntoldstories.com. They can get it through the website.
2: I really appreciate you having a chat with me and uh, sharing some of your amazing stories.
3: It's been fun, Dylan. Thank you so much.
4: yahoofinance.com.